everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Untangling the Lines. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren, and I'm a boarded veterinary anesthesiologist at a small animal referral hospital. And today I am joined by Danny. Hey guys, this is Danny. I'm a certified vet tech in the neurology department. Uh, Welcome back. So today we are going to talk about the differences between atropine and glycopyrrolate, or we like to call it glyco. And these drugs are pretty commonly used in the anesthetic realm. And typically we're presented with a clinical case where our patient's heart rate is too low, or what we call bradycardic. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to see, obviously depending on which drugs we use, um, to see a low heart rate, especially if we use something like uh, Domitor or Dextatomidine. Uh, so I guess, you know, the and main... And opioids. And opioids, yeah. Common. And honestly, just being on ISO as well. Um, so I think knowing which drugs that we can safely use in order to increase heart rate uh, is something that all techs really should have in their toolbox. Absolutely. And usually we are presented with kind of one of two typical scenarios. We tend to have a bradycardic patient that either has low blood pressure or has high blood pressure. And the time when we see low heart rates with high blood pressure is usually in a patient that's very vasoconstricted, and that would be with uh, dexmedetomidine, kind of creates that initial cardiovascular profile. But I would say typically we are reaching for these, this family of drugs, and they're called anticholinergics, when we have a low blood pressure situation where the dog's heart rate is also low. And we are trying to improve our blood pressure and bring it back up to normal. So ideally a Doppler of 80 to 100 at minimum. And by increasing the heart rate, we are also then increasing blood pressure. We'll have to do rounds on this at a different time, but heart rate is directly related to your cardiac output, which is one of your big determinants of your blood pressure. So I guess one of the main questions for a technician who potentially has a patient under anesthesia and the the patient starts to become bradycardic, uh, you know, it's not uncommon for us to see heart rates in the 40s or sometimes in the 30s, depending on the drugs that we, we chose. So I guess my main question that always pops in is, you know, is how low is too low when it comes to to heart rate? And at what point do you actually have to intervene and do something about it? Yeah. And I think that can sometimes be a little bit of a struggle, even for me sometimes. And there was a bit of a listserv that went around on the emails of the brain trust of the great anesthesiologists. And it was decided through that powwow that generally speaking, if the heart rate is less than 50% of the normal resting heart rate of that animal, then we consider using an anticholinergic or that that heart rate is too low. So I think that then becomes very dependent on the patient. If you have a cat that's normal heart rate is let's say 180 to 220, anytime you're under 100, it's too low. Mm. And so I don't feel comfortable with double digits in cats. Now, if you have a very fit a police dog whose resting heart rate is probably 60, 70, I guess I don't really start to panic until we get into the 20s. And again, we never panic. We just walk quickly. And so those are probably the times when I pull out my, my atropine or my glyco. Now, you should know what your patient's baseline heart rate is before you start a procedure. Sometimes in an emergency, you might never see its baseline, especially if they come in, let's say, as a hemoabdomen, they have no blood volume, and they're very tachycardic at 200, even though they're a 40-kg 
golden, which is, it's just not normal. Yeah. So you might just have to infer based on kind of breed standard, I'd say, or what you would expect. Do you have any kind of a cutoff that no matter what, no matter what breed, no matter what animal, no matter how athletic, you know, do you have in your mind, all right, if the heart rate gets into the 20s at any point or low 30s, you know, do you ever have a hard and fast number or is it really subjective to the individual animal? I think it's subjective to the individual animal, but yeah, zero is never a good number. Zero is never good, right? Yeah. <laughs> I usually try to intervene before that point. Zero. Right. Yeah. And the other time, even if your blood pressure is moderate to normal or so, if you are having what we call Brady arrhythmias, which is like a true cardiac arrhythmia that is too slow, and typically we're thinking sick sinus syndrome or an AV block, that is another time, even if you're not truly hypotensive, that you might want to consider giving an anticholinergic. And to recognize an AV block, you will see on an ECG that you have a P wave with no QRS. And sometimes that'll happen more, just one beat at a time. And sometimes you'll see it happens um, a couple beats in a row. So you'll see PQRST, PQRST, P, 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 PQRST. Okay. And when you see that many P waves in a row with no QRS in between, that should be concerning to you. And so even if your Doppler is 75, it's not awful. But at some point that it, it's like the heart is slowly coming to a stop. That means too much vagal tone, and we need to increase our rate. So it's kind of the job of the technician to, to be watching for all these things, you know, while you're under anesthesia, watching your, your Doppler, watching your ECG, um, you know, double-checking your, your actual heart rate. So all these things kind of paint a picture as to when to start moving forward with, with something like atropine or glyco. Yep. And when you're listening to your Doppler, the P waves won't actually make a pulse because in order for the heart to make a true beat, the ventricles have to pump and to pump blood forward. So the P wave is just the atria, the top part of the heart kind of contracting, and the ventricle below it is essentially staying silent. So the whole pumping action of the heart has stopped, and so you'll actually hear nothing on your Doppler until that next true beat with a P QRST comes through. And so you might hear like whoosh, 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 that's silence. Whoosh. <laughs> and usually if you hear that silence on your Doppler, you if you have the ability to, you should put an ECG on and, and try to figure out why those pauses are happening. Are there any contraindications or um, conditions that you would want to avoid an anticholinergic? Hmm. That's a good thought. Well, I guess if you know that you are in a situation where you are very vasoconstricted, where your blood pressure is very high, let's say your Doppler is 150, 180, and your heart rate is very low. And let's say that's after you give a larger dose of an alpha-2 agonist like Dexmed mm-hmm. IV, and you see that initial first phase. This is another good rounds topic for another time, talking about Dexmed. But when you're in that initial first phase and your heart rate is low, it's low in a reflex because the blood pressure is too high. And so there are pressure sensors in your carotid artery that tell your heart to slow down because I have too much pressure going on here. It's too high. So that is a totally normal reflex. And if you try to force the heart rate higher in that moment, you're actually increasing the work of the, of the heart because imagine trying the heart trying to pump through a tiny little straw, and now you say, you're not working hard enough, pump harder. Yeah. And that can actually create some problems.
So I guess I just want to clarify for the, you know, the text listening. Let's say you have a dog under anesthesia and you have a relatively low heart rate, let's say in the 30s or the 40s, but yet your blood pressure is relatively normal. You have a, a systolic on the Doppler of, let's say, 80 or 90. Let's say as you're, you know, you're going through your anesthesia, your, your heart rate slowly starts to come down, you know, we'll say 40 and then 38 and then 36 and then 34. And I guess as a tech, I would just want to know specifically at what point, you know, do I intervene with something if everything else is, is relatively normal and if intervening with atropine or glyco is the best choice, you know, at that, at that point or do I do anything else? So in that scenario, and I would have to say anesthesia is very much an art. Mm. There's a lot of ish. That's I-S-H. Yeah, and it's very case dependent as well. Yes. So in that scenario, I would probably reach for my glyco sooner, like as we drop below 40. I think there are very few dogs that can truly tolerate a heart rate of 30s appropriately. And... I know that my heart rate is coming down, and even if my blood pressure is borderline or isn't changing, because I know that the heart rate is so closely connected to cardiac output, there's a certain point where I kind of sometimes lose trust in my monitors and think that maybe we are in a worse situation because if we're going from 40 to 30, you're dropping your heart rate by 25%, and that's already dropped 50% from the dog's baseline. Yeah, so I would say that's probably significant. And even if my Doppler is not reflecting such a change, I kind of say, ooh, the math doesn't really add up. And I would just feel more comfortable with a faster heart rate, even if that meant that the blood pressure went from 90 to, let's say, 120, 130, which is still normal and perfectly acceptable in the range. I guess I just wouldn't want to push that dog's blood pressure to 180. And we don't always get that type of control with atropine or glyco. But I think I think it's very... I would say cats under 100 and dogs under 40, I really have a hard time justifying not intervening. Uh, Just to kind of piggyback on that, are there any risks to potentially giving this too early? You know, if you start to see things trending down, is there any risk to jumping the gun essentially uh, besides potentially just causing hypertension or, you know, tachycardia? I think that's probably the big concern. There are some patients where a severe tachycardia or hypertension is inappropriate. Maybe a dog that has uncontrolled blood loss, Mm -hmm. by increasing your blood pressure there, you will actually make the blood blood loss worse. Right. With a high blood pressure, you're just going to be losing blood faster. Right. But usually dogs that have uncontrolled blood loss usually are not bradycardic. And if they are bradycardic, bad that's yeah you got something going on (laughs) yeah but that's a I I can't even think I've ever been in that type of scenario that or a patient where a true like if you are if you are truly vasoconstricted because the reason why you have such a low heart rate is because you have a high blood pressure vasoconstrictive type dexmedetomidine scenario where increasing the heart rate would increase your your heart's oxygen consumption and what we call like the oxygen demand, Mm -hmm. that to me is a problem. Okay. Because usually if you're that vasoconstricted and like you're trying to pump through a straw or it's essentially feels like up against a wall, even though you have high blood pressure, your flow itself is not very good. So that would be your cardiac output. So if you have a high resistance to flow, 
then you're actually not getting much forward momentum. And then as you try to pump harder, the, the heart and the coronaries are actually not being perfused very well. And so the heart's oxygen supply cannot keep up with the oxygen demand, and that's a problem. So again, if your blood pressure is already 180 because you just gave Dexmed right. and your heart rate is now 35, don't giving atropine is not the answer. Yeah. Now, if you're in the phase two of dexmedetomidine, that's truly actually vasodilative. You are hypotensive, blood right. pressure 60, yep. heart rate's low, 35. Yep. And now it's a great time to give an anticholinergic Got it. and help bring that blood pressure and cardiac output up. Okay. So for the merits of the pod, I do think that as the nerds that we are, we should really understand some of the background as to what anticholinergics are and what they're doing in the body. And in order to do that for these drugs, we kind of have to revisit a little bit of parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. So the sympathetic nervous system is epinephrine. It's the fight or flight. It's the running away from the bear Mm. versus your parasympathetic, which is your vagus. Your rest and your digest. Rest and digest. Oh, I've never heard that one before, but I love that. I'm going to use that. Um, So yeah, so parasympathetic, vagal, rest, and digest. Perfect. So the neurotransmitter that the vagus nerve uses is called acetylcholine. And acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter is actually used all over the body. And what is true for all um, kind of chemical signals, it's actually the receptor that determines its function. So on the receiver cell, the listening cell. So as the vagus nerve sends out acetylcholine, you have receptors on the heart that are called muscarinic receptors. And they are going to receive that acetylcholine and will then actually tell the heart to slow down. Now, if you have too much stimulation from the vagus, if it's really going crazy, or if it's just not appropriately balanced by adequate sympathetic tone, which we know that we do this ourselves by giving opioids, dexmedetomidine, all of these things squash the sympathetic nervous system. So you have an unbalanced vagal tone. You can have kind of pathological or clinical bradycardia. Mm -hmm. There's an enzyme that actually kind of breaks down this neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, and essentially ends the signal and removes the acetylcholine from the the synapse or the junction between the vagus nerve and the heart. And that's called an acetylcholinesterase enzyme. But the other option is that as that synapse floods with acetylcholine, some of it can actually migrate up out of that synapse and actually onto the vagus nerve itself. And that's kind of a built-in inhibitory feedback loop where these acetylcholine molecules get kind of drift all the way back out and touch the vagus nerve itself. And the vagus nerve goes, oh, you guys have plenty of acetylcholine. I totally get this. And that is actually kind of uh, an intrinsic inhibitor and actually will help stop vagus outflow and decrease some of the parasympathetic tone. And that will be important later as we discuss some of our dose dose options. And so how does this all relate to glyco? Well, atropine and glycopyrrolate are two members of a family of drugs that blocks the muscarinic receptor exclusively versus just blocking all acetylcholine. So when you give atropine or glyco, you're not affecting the muscles. You're only affecting the heart and other kind of vagal inputs. And so these two drugs are kind of termed anti-muscarinics, to be more specific, where you see anticholinergics used very commonly. But as a result of giving the, the 
atropine or the glyco, you actually will see a blockage of that receptor on the heart, therefore decreasing the vagus nerve's influence on the heart rate. And as a result, you'll actually see your heart rate start to rise because that rest and digest type of force has been reduced and hopefully restoring the balance between vagus and sympathetic nervous systems where you have an equal heart rate. So I, I guess just to recap and to clarify something, so when you give atropine or glyco, you are not directly causing an increase in the heart rate, but you're actually decreasing the effect that the, vagal, that the vagus nerve is having on the rest of the body. Yes, exactly. And so generally speaking, if you have a low heart rate, there's two ways to try to increase it. You can either give a drug that actually decreases parasympathetic tone, so it's decreasing the inhibition on the heart, or you can give a drug that increases sympathetic tone, such as like a beta agonist, uh, almost like, like epinephrine. That right. would be an example of that. Right. Something that actually stimulates the heart directly to pump faster. So same effect, but different ways of going about it. Exactly. And so we know in our clinical population, especially with the drugs that we give, our dogs and cats tend to have just very high vagal tone, especially because of the opioids and things. So usually giving an anticholinergic or an anti-muscarinic like glyco or atropine actually helps restore that balance. So, you know, I'd say it's about, God, maybe 10 to 25% of my cases that I end up having to use something to increase the heart rate. Uh, I have to say, to be honest, I don't think I've ever actually reached for atropine. I think 100% of the time, it's always been glyco, and I think that's just because I'm probably comfortable with glyco and not comfortable using atropine. So, you know, for the technicians listening, what is the difference? Uh, is there a difference? Does it matter which one we reach for? Is it case dependent? You know, how do we make this decision? Yeah, so they are very similar, but there are significant differences. I would say the one of the biggest differences is your timing. So glyco has a little bit longer onset time. It's around five-ish minutes. The old adage is that you give a dose of glyco, you go have a cigarette and come back. Hmm. We don't advocate for smoking now, so go eat some kale chips and then come back. Um, But then the duration's also a little bit longer, around 30 to 45 minutes. And this compares to atropine's very quick onset time, about 10 to 30 seconds, and a shorter duration of about 10 to 15 minutes. Hmm. So... If you are in a panic, you should be reaching for atropine, not glyco. A good example of this is in CPR. If yeah. you see those CPR posters, right. you never see glyco written there. Right. You see atropine. That's for a reason. That is for a reason, because okay. you don't have five minutes in CPR to see if maybe yeah, of course. this is going to work. Right. So atropine is typically used in a more emergency sense, where glyco is a little bit of your kind of casual... Yeah, well, maybe so, I want to increase the heart rate. Yeah, so your casual surgery, where you're casually seeing a decrease in heart rate and you casually want to bring it up, glyco would be your choice. But if you're yeah. in a little bit more of an emergency situation, atropine would yeah. most likely be your choice. Now, can you use atropine in a, you know, quote-unquote casual situation if you don't have access to glyco? A lot of people actually don't even have glyco hmm. at their hospitals. And we used to actually call it liquid gold because glyco is so expensive oh. that most people in the real world just use atropine all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Is there any risk to potentially repeating your atropine doses? So the other big thing about atropine versus glyco is that atropine is a relatively small molecule and can cross the blood-brain barrier pretty quickly. And, so, and also the placenta. Whereas the glyco 
molecule is much larger and does not cross the blood-brain barrier or the placenta. And so if you have repeat high-dose atropine dosing, you can actually reach a level of atropine toxicity. And there's a mnemonic that goes with this. It's a little bit of a song. There's actually, I believe, a whole poem that goes with atropine toxicity. Veterinary medicine has a lot of these weird... This is also human medicine. Right, right. (laughs) Um, But it goes hot as a hair, blind as a bat, dry as a bone, red as a beet, and mad as a hatter. Yeah, it was a little weird. It's so weird. But they actually all kind of stand for the big side effects of atropine toxicity. That includes... Decreased sweating, so you feel hot, you have like warm, dry skin. Also, blurred vision from your dilated pupils. You have a dry mouth, it inhibits your salivary glands. You also get vasodilated, so your skin turns red. And the worst part is that you can have extreme hallucinations, confusion, and excitation, especially in the elderly. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, my usual peri anesthetic dose is 0.02 mg per kg. And I have been told to kind of, if I've given that dose four, five, or six times in a 24-hour period, I think you've reached your max. Wow, okay. So if I'm giving, if I give atropine and that works, and then 15 minutes later, I can start giving another dose of atropine. Mm. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, ooh, maybe I should try giving it again. I'll, I might actually reach for glyco at that point. I know I haven't reached atropine toxicity levels. Mm-hmm. I never have. I hope I never will. Yeah. But that's... So it is theoretically something that you need to be monitoring for if you're if you're in a situation where you're giving multiple doses of atropine, mm-hmm. you don't you do want to start looking for symptoms and signs of of atropine toxicity. True, and, but also if you are giving that many doses of atropine, in such there's a short, something else. There's something going on right. that you need to be looking out for. Yeah. and if it's something like a second or third degree AV block, that could be a pacemaker. But also in those cases, a lot of times atropine doesn't work. So I will say, in, you know, in the cases where I've needed to give glyco, I don't honestly think I've ever had to give a second dose. You know, maybe, maybe very infrequently I've given that second dose of glyco, but typically my one dose will, will Your surgeons are also very quick, which is helpful. So it also can cross the placenta. And so it is generally considered that atropine is contraindicated in dystocias. So in fetuses, feti whichever you would call them. Low heart rate is actually a survival mechanism when the fetus is suffering from an oxygen deficiency. So remember how earlier I was saying that if you're very vasoconstricted, your oxygen supply drops, Mm -hmm. and therefore trying to increase the heart rate against that low oxygen supply can can make your deficit even bigger because the heart's working harder. This is what fetuses do normally. So if they have if they are hypoxic, if you have fetal hypoxia, you'll actually see that they become very bradycardic. And a lot of people then want to give atropine because that's a normal reflex in an adult animal. But in a fetus, it's actually a sign that they're dying of hypoxia, not of bradycardia. And so actually giving atropine will actually kind of precipitate fetal death faster because you're exaggerating the oxygen deficiency. So generally speaking, if your fetus is bradycardic, establish an airway. Try to intubate with a little 16-gauge catheter. Don't give a drug that just increases heart rate. So with that note, the question is, what dose do you choose? So I guess for everybody listening right now, let's just make sure we're talking on the same page. So when we say full dose of glyco, I think in my mind that's a 0.01 
mg per kg dose. I would agree. And so for, for half dose, yeah. So for half dose, we're talking about a 0. 0.005. Zero mag, zero five. Yeah. Right. Mg per kg. And I have to admit, I'm a full dose girl. I go big, go home. If my heart rate is too low, I, my blood pressure is low, and I want my heart rate to be higher, I commit and I give the whole thing. So counter, <laughs> counterpoint <laughs> to that. So you know, as as a tech, I, I think we're always trying to play this 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 game of uh, keeping our patient on the table. <laughs> uh, so, you know, is it possible that if you go with this full dose that all of a sudden your heart rate goes from 40 to 140 uh, and your patient starts to jump off the table and he gets light and then your surgeon starts yelling at you that he's bleeding too much? And, uh, you know, what, what's, what's the answer to that? Okay. Well, the reason why our dogs and cats seem to get lighter when you give an anticholinergic and the heart rate goes up. It's actually a matter of how much inhalant anesthesia is kind of circulating around your body and how much of the blood is being centralized versus getting sent everywhere. So when they're hypotensive, your whole blood volume kind of centralizes. And so the blood gets prioritized to, let's say, brain, heart, lungs, maybe your kidneys, Uh, That's about it, right? Mm. Probably some others, but whomever. So then as soon as you increase your blood pressure, increase your cardiac output, and the the body goes, oh, thank God, it then sends blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so when you had just the right concentration of isofluorine to keep your patient asleep when it was just being perfused to like three or four organs, now you're now sending isofluorine to your biceps. The, the amount of ISO that's in the body is now being redistributed to a much larger space. So it's almost like the overall concentration of ISO in the patient decreases because yeah. now everything's being perfused? Essentially. So, you know, if you're a tech and you're about to give this, do you automatically uh, assume that you need to do something else additionally? I mean, is it advisable to turn up your ISO almost prophylactically before you give it, you know, how do, or do you just kind of wait to see what kind of an effect it's going to have? I usually just wait because if I see sometimes, I, sometimes I feel like I don't really get a great effect from my glyco anyways. Yeah. And if I've already have a low blood pressure situation, my heart rate's kind of on the meh or lower side mm-hmm. and I'm hoping glyco fixes it. Mm-hmm. I don't also want to increase my anesthetic depth be, in case that glyco doesn't do its job because then I've actually put myself worse in the hole. Right. Uh, right. But if I give a dose of glyco and I see 40, 60, 80, 100 bullet, and then I just kind of brace myself yeah. and prepare to do to intervene right. if I need like a small dose of propofol or a small dose of fentanyl or something just to kind of, again, work that balance. But I don't think it's usually that dramatic. Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. <laughs> the, um, but I think that by using lower doses, you might actually see a paradoxical slowing of the heart. And so remember that presynaptic receptor I was talking about, the vagus nerve's own intrinsic little inhibitor, where the acetylcholine kind of drifts out of that receptor synapse, and it goes and tells the vagus nerve, I've heard enough, right? Well, at lower doses and at lower concentrations, it seems like atropine and glyco actually block that feedback receptor before it actually blocks the receptor on the heart. We don't really know why, and it's just the presumed theory right now. But if you give low doses of atropine and glyco, you will actually often see your heart rate go down even further instead of actually increase it, which is what you want to happen. So you're saying that by giving a half dose, which would be the 0.005 mg per kg, 
that you could potentially cause a decrease in heart rate even further. Yes. And that has happened to me. That has happened to me more than a handful of times because like you, especially when I was running cases primarily as a resident, you give, sometimes you get burned, right? You give the full dose of 0.01 of glyco or mm-hmm. 0.02 of atropine. And then yes, the heart rate goes from 40 to 140. Your right. dog gets light and right. you just feel like it just gets more complicated yeah. and everyone gets a little kerfuffled. But sometimes when the heart rate's 30 and then you give low dose atropine or low dose glyco because you know you want the mild effect and then you see your 30 turn to 25 Ooh. and then I feel more kerfuffled yeah, <laughs> in that scenario. Absolutely. And so I, uh, at that, I just, you usually just have to repeat your dose. Yep. Some say that if you wait, it might come around, but like usually. It's also a roll of the dice. I mean, now you're, yeah. now you're waiting even, even longer. Yeah. I really just, I just want it to work yeah. when I want it to work. But sometimes it works so well. Yeah. So well, it's really hard to kind of recognize which ones are going to be the hyper responders. Yeah. And I think it depends on the just the degree of imbalance in terms of your fight or flight versus your vagal stimulation. Okay. And but there's really no way to no, to know that going into I it. I feel like I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I can tell, mm. but it's very much an ish, and yeah. I can't even describe to you how I know that. I just have given an anticholinergic to so many animals in my career. That it's just, it's at some just point your, you just kind of your intuition at this point. Yeah, and I realize that's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that's not academic. We're not. Uh, no. We're not recommending that at all. But, um, but if you, I, t- I just always give the full, the full dose now. Okay. And deal with the consequences. And I would just rather deal with the consequences. Maybe, I have to say I don't have that many patients jumping off my table. And maybe give your surgeons a heads up. So you know that's a really good point. Be mm. like, by the way, right. The heart rate might go up. Bleeding is going to increase. Well, hopefully they have hemostasis. Hopefully. But I also find that a lot of times you'll actually see that you get very minimal effect from your atropine or glyco, and that can actually be even more frustrating. So you give your full dose. You give your 0.01 mix per kg, or you give your 0.02 of atropine, and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Your cat's heart rate is still 76, which is well below my threshold of 100. Mm -hmm. I'm usually feeling very uncomfortable. And then you try another dose. So now you're at 0.02 of glyco or 0.04 of atropine. That's, that's 0.04 of atropine is the dose on the CPR chart. So you feel like you're doing something for real. Still, it's really low. Um, this, I, I feel like I run into this not uncommonly in cats, and it's really annoying. And I think some people just then accept it, and they don't really go very like much farther. But that's the time when I reach for a completely different drug, and that's called ephedrine. Ephedrine is kind of my favorite friend for cats. And ephedrine is, remember how we were talking about earlier, how it's all about a balance, right? You can give a drug that inhibits the inhibitor. That's our anticholinergics mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Or you can give a drug that increases sympathetic tone. Right. That's what ephedrine does. Okay. And so I find that when cats are not responding to my glyco or my atropine, but if instead I reach for a dose of ephedrine, and it's a one-time injection, it's not a CRI, and it kind of gives the adrenal glands a little bit of a sympathetic reset. It tells those adrenal glands, no, no, make your adrenaline, we need it. And it kind of reprimes the body to listen to the sympathetic tone. It seems that the cat's heart rate increases and 
also their sensitivity to anticholinergics down the line actually increases as well. And so sometimes I feel like cats just need that reset button. So you keep saying cats. Is, is ephedrine something that you'd give to a dog? You can give it to a dog. I just don't like it in dogs. Okay. So ephedrine is considered a, it's called a mixed acting, it's an alpha and beta agonist. So we'll talk about this on another pod at some point, but so alpha agonists are things that cause vasoconstriction and help increase blood pressure through tightening your squeeze on your vessels. Right. And it's also a beta agonist that's going to increase the pumping force and the rate Mm -hmm. of your heart. By doing so, you kind of get the best of both worlds. It's really nice. Although it's generally considered short acting. And that's why I say it's a good reset button for cats, but for dogs, it doesn't really reset anything and it will improve the blood pressure, but for two to three minutes, and then it just seems to go away. Mm. I'm just never impressed by ephedrine in dogs. Maybe others have better experiences, but I feel like I've tried it 20, 30 times, and maybe once or twice have I actually felt like I did something. Does ephedrine have any relationship to epinephrine? It does. They are kind of in the same family, although not nearly as as dramatic, let's say, as, as epinephrine. I would not reach for ephedrine in a CPR situation. That's still epi's role. Yep. But I find that if I need to kind of help reset that seesaw balance between vagus nerve and sympathetic outflow, I find that ephedrine is very helpful, especially in cats. Um, although... Sometimes I've even tried giving ephedrine before I've given glyco, and I'm not super excited about what it does. Sometimes you actually see the vasoconstrictive force first instead of the heart rate bump, mm-hmm. but then you give glyco 10 minutes later, and wham, your heart rate goes from 75 to 130. Yeah. Still slow for a cat, yeah. but that's like twice as fast. Better. Yeah, it's significantly improved. And so I, I really love it. And I, I don't really go anywhere with a cat under anesthesia without ephedrine now. Okay. Because I find that I just had to, between the opioids and the Dexmed that we're using on them, it's my saver. So, you know, about 10 years ago uh, at, at a previous hospital, it was very common for us to give what you would call bag or mag. So, you know, your your Torb ACE glyco or your morphine ACE glyco, and that would actually be our, our pre-med. So we would have glyco mixed into... Mm-hmm our pre-med, you know, yeah. immediately giving it. I think uh, that's still pretty common in a lot of places. Yeah, so, you know, what are, we, what are we saying to the techs listening out there now that are still giving glyco in their pre-med? You know, is it still advisable to do that kind of prophylactically, or is it better to be... There, I, I find that I tend not to use kind of pre-mixed pre-medication protocols for my patients. I think partially because I like being an anesthesiologist and fine-tuning every patient and, you know, titrating everything exactly to the individual. It's kind of, it's my career. It's a puzzle. Yeah, I love that. But there's really nothing wrong with that situation. Usually the biggest cardiovascular side effect of opioids is just bradycardia. And so mixing TORB with glyco essentially is a, is more or less a cardio-neutral combination and it it, again it really i don't think it's It's harmful yeah it's a zero-sum game which is pretty good and ace promazine as the the a in bag is going to cause vasodilation pumping faster in a vasodilative state yeah you might still be hypotensive but you're not increasing the work of the heart so it still is probably okay i would say the thing that does make me nervous sometimes is when you mix your anticholinergic with dexmed at the same time yeah because i feel like 
I, some people may do that. I think it used to be, be taught as a proper way to, to pre-medicate your patients, especially because Dexmed causes such bad bradycardia. But since learning more about the oxygen demands that a high heart rate in the face of vasoconstriction can do, I feel like that's kind of come out of vogue. So the other reason why you might not notice a great effect to your anticholinergics, atropine or glyco, is if your patient is just too cold. And I find that when their body temperature is less than 93, again, ideally this never happens, but if their body temperature is so low, for some reason, it, they just don't seem to respond to glyco or atropine. And you end up having to use other drugs to try to increase the heart rate if it's a problem, like a dopamine CRI, dobutamine CRI, something, especially if they're also hypotensive. Uh, and ideally, get them as warm as you can. Although sometimes, as you warm them up, and let's say you hit like 94 degrees, all the glyco you <laughs> gave while it was cold comes to fruition. Yeah. And talk about sometimes jumping off the table. Because the time that I think about usually is a, like a small dog that has like multiple bite wounds. Mm-hmm. And so you really can't drape off or really, you can't provide that much heat support other than like a fluid warmer on your yeah. IV line or something. Um, just because the surgeon needs to see 95% of the body. Right. So you're given a head and four paws to try to keep warm with, and everything else is filleted open. I think it's just cool as a tech that all of this stuff relates to each other. You know, it's all one big spider web that you, oh, yeah. you pull on one thread and something else gives. Absolutely. And so it's, it really is a cool puzzle to the more you do it, the more you start to find out how much each specific thing relates to each other. Like this oh, is a perfect example, like the temperature of the dog. Yeah. Also having a direct correlation to how well your, your drugs are working. So. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, also with how well the patient is going to heal, mm-hmm. how well it's going, or the risk of infection in the surgical site. It actually has, it. I mean, being that cold, being 90 degrees is not ideal for, I mean, Life. hypothermia. Yeah, right. right. But it actually, the way that it actually impacts the patient performance postoperatively is actually really interesting. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's so cool. I you know especially as an anesthetist, you are really only involved with the dog for a couple hours of its hospital stay. Yeah. Although, I think you actually have a really big effect. You have a huge yeah. You have a very large role in a small amount of time. Yeah, exactly. We are critical care in a really short time scale. Right. Right. Um, And so yeah, it's fascinating. It's awesome. Mm, I love what we do. I hope the techs and doctors and anybody listening to this, you know, starts to take something away from this that, you know, hopefully helps them in their practice. All right. We have to start stop gushing over our, oh, I'm sorry. ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I just want to thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. We hoped you kind of got to walk away with something useful in your clinical practice. And we hope you share our podcast with your friends, your clinic mates, other people you know who are anesthetizing cats and dogs and would like some guidance out there. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to tweet at us. We now have a Twitter, so that is at Untangling Lines. And we look forward to all the comments and input you have. So until next time, have a good day. Thanks, everyone. Bye.